being a retired military chaplain, I start with the rules of engagement, if that's all right. So one of the things is, I put my teacup way off of the ground. So if I don't think you're, I'm getting through to you, I'm going to do what I tell all my counseling students at the seminary not to do. I'm going to talk longer. <laughs> I'm going to try to talk louder. And I'm a Baptist minister, so I'm going to take an offering. <laughs> so Will there be an altar call at the end? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you throughout the conference is not going to be new to many of you that have been chaplains, especially those that have been chaplains for a while. But what it might be is a different way to package it, a different way to use different language, and perhaps a different way to tell people that don't get what we chaplains do for a living. So I'm a retired Air Force chaplain. I'm married to an Air Force cop. We said we have the law of the gospel taken care of. <laughs> I get more converts than he does. Um, and now for 22, 23, 24 years, I've been creating and running the chaplaincy program at Denver Seminary. At any one time, I have close to 100 students who want to be chaplains. The majority of them are going to go into healthcare or into the military. Um, how many of you are in healthcare here? Great. Okay. The other thing you're going to be hearing about as I keep going is chaplaincy has been and definitely is after COVID the largest growing form of ministry in the United States. COVID in particular has taught people about the value of chaplains. I don't know how, how you're received in your churches, but in, in my denomination, we're called invisible missionaries. People really don't know what we do, and sometimes I'm okay with that because I, then I tell them I have to shoot them as they find out. <laughs> but they really don't get what we do. They don't get that we still represent our faith group first, and we're there for everyone else at the same time. They don't get that we minister not just to people, but to institutions. And so we're going to be looking at all of those things as we go. Okay. If you have some questions for me, because I've got so much stuff to do. If you've got some questions for me, you know, jot them down or stop me in the middle and I'll tell you, hang on, we'll talk about it later. Fair enough? The other thing that happens is when I teach, I get so excited I forget to take a break. So Dave, I think you're going to help me with that one. This first presentation is going to be a little longer than the second one, so it won't necessarily be happening now. So we ready? Ready. Okay. First thing I want to talk about is a way for us to explain about how when we work in crisis and disaster, people's theological issues are going to come up, even if they don't have language for it. And most of what we know that we do as chaplains is on the front edge of people being in crisis. Even in the churches, people don't come to us for marriage enrichment. They come when it's hard broke, when it hurts. And so we're going to be looking at what somebody's faith can do for them. Now, this is any faith, not just the faith we wish they had. It can provide a source of strength, comfort, community, meaning, purpose. And probably the most important part for us as chaplains is it may or may not provide an answer to the eternal questions that they have because of the crisis right now. 
companies face does provide answers to their problems, then it becomes an asset in the crisis. And sometimes that's exactly what keeps them alive, keeps them going, helps them hang on. It becomes an easy asset if they and we can uncover a faith that works for them. When it doesn't provide adequate answers, then not only does it become a part of the crisis, but it becomes the crisis itself. That's when we talk about somebody having a crisis of faith. And that will oftentimes trump what set it off. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right, I'm seeing faces. I don't take an offering. This is good. <laughs> I want to talk about three different ways to look at what somebody's faith is. And for those of you in healthcare in particular, you're used to doing spiritual assessments, correct? Yes. This is another way to think of spiritual assessments. And all of us as chaplains have to make a spiritual assessment. Now, that doesn't mean we're going into the checklist. Oftentimes, that means we're listening to their narrative, we're listening to their story, and we go, okay, where they are right this moment when I pick them up is probably this. So we're going to look at three different kinds of faith. And here I'm also talking about any faith, not just our Christian faith. If somebody has an open faith, that means there's healthy flexibility in what they believe. There's room for theological growth. I don't know about you, but how many times have you looked at a scripture? I just did it with what you brought this morning, Richard. I hear a scripture and I go, oh, I missed that part for years. It never occurred to me this. That doesn't mean the text changed or the truth changed. It means oftentimes I change and I hear something God wants me to hear today. So there's room for that theological growth. It also has room for the bad stuff that happens in life. It isn't a place that says, as long as I believe, everything I want is going to happen. It says, can you pick up your cross and follow me? Is there a possibility that you understand it's going to be hard? Have you counted the cost before you build? But open faith also allows the person in that faith to question leadership and God. <laughs> Probably more importantly for us as chaplains doing this assessment, there's a trust in God that's bigger than the circumstances they find themselves to be in. Closed faith is just the opposite. It's very rigid, very legalistic. There's an all or nothing either or approach to life. And there's no room in a closed faith for tragedy or evil or crisis. Talk back to me. Why would that be the case? Like questioning, like why would, why would God, God do that? Yeah, <clears throat> but they're not supposed to question because they have a close faith. So what else, what happens? What happens then? I'm not supposed to question. I find something that makes no sense to me. What does that say about the faith they're standing on? It's not working, is it? They're going to be in a lot of distress. They're going to be in a lot of distress. They're, they're living on sinking sand. Okay, Everything they believe is if I follow the rules, it's going to work. Right. We see that with um, scribes and the Pharisees. In our text. If I just follow the rules, it's going to work. Somebody with a closed faith is oftentimes not allowed to question leadership or doctrine. And it's a, in its extreme, it's going to go into a cult. 
Suppose faith has sin-based rules. Everything negative that happens is because they're synonymous. I don't know about some of you, but I know when I was doing healthcare chaplaincy, I had a civilian pastor who came in and I was working with a patient over here. He was working with a patient over here. And I heard him say, if you only had enough faith, you wouldn't have gotten cancer. Sin-based rules. kind of faith is where we find a lot of people to be in the middle of a crisis and by the way they're in our churches too what they believe their theology is based on their circumstances their experience this next sentence is really weird but hang on with me non-believers have this kind of faith many believers of all faiths live this way I believe this with my head but now I'm seeing this. So now how do I make sense of this? That's a lot of places where we chat and pick up people, isn't it? As they're making meaning out of what's going on. Another way to look at this is just a schematic. In tab A, one's understanding of how I believe about a God up here determines on how I acted out here on earth. Is there a good God or is there a bad God? Is there a God waiting to punish me? Or is there a God waiting to rescue me? Whatever my theology says this, open or closed, is going to be how I act out when I'm in the middle of a crisis. With people in the circumstantial faith, it goes from the bottom up. Understanding of what's happening brings my perspective on the God I believe in. So it's very circumstantial. Are we good so far? Okay, now, why did I bother doing this? Because you're going to find that people that have basically these three kinds of faith are going to respond differently when we pick them up in crisis. In an open faith, it doesn't mean the person isn't going to be mad at God, isn't going to struggle, isn't going to try to make meaning out of life, but they will generally, eventually, have a successful faith response. Think about so many of the psalms that we have. They start out with the emotional pain, don't they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wish you would take the children of my enemies and bash their heads against the rocks. But by the time you get to the end of the psalm, it usually says something like this. But you're God, I'm not, and you will I trust. Now, I wish the crises that we go through and our clients go through will go as fast as the song. <laughs> I also wish that you and I were able to see how they get to the end. But you're God and I'm not. It gives me a different perspective on the text about raising your child up and they won't depart from it. It means they know how to come home. They know where their foundation is. They know how to come back to something. I've had many conversations with people who were uh, prisoners of war and also um, some that were in the Holocaust or their family members were. And the people that had a successful experience going through <coughs> all of them would typically say to me something like, I had to figure out that God was still a good God and that God had a plan for me and hadn't abandoned me. Dear God, I'm not in the will I trust. 
closed faith has just the opposite problem. A person with a closed faith is more likely to have emotional and spiritual problems and develop a crisis of faith in the middle of a crisis. What's the logic behind that? Why would that be true? Either they have to reject the reality they're in or their faith in God. Yeah, what they believe it isn't working. Now what do I do? I gave my life to this faith and it's not working. What do I do? So oftentimes they'll go one way or the other. They'll find a new faith or they give up entirely. Circumstantial faith, the person with the circumstantial faith will often experience a loss of their stability, their equilibrium, and a loss of faith they never really had because they've never thought about it. They become angry to God, oftentimes they never even believed him. Because for the first time, how could this happen to me? Um, the gal that I wrote the, the book with, the work of the chaplains, Naomi is a FBI <coughs> chaplain. Travels all over the world. She's an expert in crisis and disaster. And in the school shootings that we've had, one is too many, by the way. All the school shootings that we've had, a lot of people, the parents in particular, have a circumstantial faith. And will come and say, how can I make sense of this? How could somebody kill a child? God, how did you let it happen? The God I never even talked to until today. So when we're working with our clients, I'm going to use the term clients all the way through, if that's okay. When we're working with our clients, one of the first things we're doing in a spiritual assessment is where are they today in the middle of this crisis? Are they exhibiting a circumstantial faith, closed faith, or an open faith? And an open faith can start circumstantially, can start closed, and then oftentimes will move back. Making sense? Okay. Depending on where we assess them to be is going to be our treatment plan for how we work with somebody. Different types of crisis are going to elicit different types of reactions from people. So the impact of a natural versus human-caused disaster. Give me some examples of a natural disaster. Hurricanes. Hurricanes. Wildfires. Tornadoes. Tornadoes. Earthquakes. Tornadoes. Okay. Is all fire a natural disaster? No, some of them are human caused, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You and I were talking about that with the fires up in Colorado in the urban area. So there's a natural disaster piece, and we'll talk about what that looks like for people. Then there's also the human caused types of disasters. Give me some examples. Shooting. Terrorism. War in general. War in general. Fires that humans cause. Violence, lots of violence. Biological, biochemical warfare. By the way, just as a, a side gig, I was in Turkey during the First World War. And if anybody wants to know if Saddam had, had weapons of mass destruction, I rescued a lot of the people he used his biochemical on. He didn't have the ability to have nuclear weapons. He had them, but he didn't have a delivery system. But he used bio and 
chemical on his own people, on his kids. Okay, the natural disaster. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Would, you, would you say that that would also apply to, and a lot of things like I see patients who have like cancer or an illness that maybe they do cause, doesn't it feel like maybe smoke all their life sure. or drank or just more human Yes, good point. And sometimes they'll, they'll be feeling guilty about it. Sometimes their family members will blame them. Sometimes you can't go. You couldn't have figured this out. Um, my parents are, are were World War II vets. Every World War II vet basically smoked. We gave it away for free. My mom died from lung cancer. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. In these natural disasters, there's really nobody else to blame. In fact, what do our insurance tables tell us about who's to blame for natural disasters? Yeah, okay. So there's the anger, the hurt, the fear, and we know that anger is a secondary emotion. So under that anger is fear, out of control, helplessness, all those other emotions that are underneath the anger. It's got no place else to go except to blame God. Why, God, did you allow this to happen? In a natural disaster, therefore, spiritual issues are more evident and obvious. People are using religious language. We'll hear it more. If somebody is a believer and of any kind of faith, they're oftentimes going to feel guilty and be depressed because how can I blame God? How is it possible for me to blame God? I'm a minister, for heaven's sakes. How can I blame God for the cancer I got? I did everything right. human-caused disaster, disasters, there is a culpable party. There's a good guy and there's a bad guy. We in the military know how we divide that up. That fear is still there, and fear is going to fuel the anger, and oftentimes it also then fuels revenge. These are the bad guys that we don't trust. These are the bad guys we're going to go after. And oftentimes, in order to protect ourselves emotionally, we're going to take and say, all people like this are. Um, I was stalked by a Hispanic priest. It took me a long time to trust any priest in any Hispanic. My memory was, if he could do that, then these guys could do it too. My head knew better. My heart was afraid. Making sense? Okay. Our clients are going to be here. Spiritual issues are still going to be present, yet it won't be so obvious to the person who's talking about their crisis or to those who are listening because we and maybe they feel justified in their responses. So these kinds of things are things I want you to think about when you're first meeting your clients. What kind of faith do you think they're living in right now? And are they exhibiting something different because it's a human-caused crisis? Even one of their own, as you mentioned. Or it's a natural disaster. That's going to give us our first clue of how we intervene with the people in our care. And oftentimes we'll pick it up from a narrative not those wonderful checklists with all those acronyms that we get in the hospitals. 
where I want to spend most of our time in this part of the first lecture this morning is, okay, now that we know that, how do we use theology after a disaster in the middle of a crisis to help people? So we're going to look at two things. How do we use our theology and how do we use what they believe? The easiest thing to start with is sometimes people just need permission to hurt because their own personal theology says they shouldn't. I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to be mad at God. I'm a guy. I'm supposed to be what? Tough. Tough, strong. I'm a woman. I'm not supposed to be mad because, ladies, we're gentle. We're gentle. We're meek. We're supposed to be. Yes. Uh -huh. I've never been wrong in my life. <laughs> But our own theology or our own culture is going to say, this is how I should behave. Oftentimes when I'm talking to somebody who says, I'm not allowed to feel because, because that's what they're looking at. And if they're a Christian, I'll say, tell me about how you see the scripture of Jesus before Lazarus too. What was Jesus doing there? What was Jesus doing there? Yeah, and he's the one that can walk forward and say, now come out. If he can hurt, it's not okay for you to hurt. If he can say to his disciples, I'm going to have to make the hardest decision I've ever had to make. And I've got a choice. Can you stay awake with me? Is it okay for our clients to hurt? Sometimes just that small example can give the people permission to feel. The other thing possible in that is if you didn't hurt, then this relationship wasn't important. It just means you loved and you cared and this person loved you back. Okay, now we get into the why did God. First of all, there's no easy, good answer in the time of a disaster. And last time I knew, none of us have the mind of God to say, well, this is exactly why I did it, says God. But more importantly for us as chaplains, intellectual answers rarely help anybody's wrong for our emotions. In the middle of a crisis, I'm not thinking with my head. I'm feeling. And if you try to make me think, I'm going to come up with a answer that's supposed to be true but it's not here so what we need to watch out for and chaplains are really trained to do this in a way clergy aren't what we need to watch out for is being instructive rather than walking with somebody why usually means and this is Jan's revised standard version i feel terrible life sucks what the H is going on. So don't try to explain, teach, rationalize, or defend God. God doesn't need our defense. The best response that we have to give with people in a crisis is empathy. What does empathy mean to you? Some definitions. And don't Google it, just talk. Mercy. <laughs> Mercy, what else? Uh, correctly identifying and verbalizing the emotions. Yeah, okay. Identifying their emotions, verbalizing their emotions. But what does empathy mean with us and emotions? What else? 
You're so close to that. I think we're entering into their brokenness. There you go. Okay, we're identifying with their emotions too, not just being able to intellectualize it. Good. 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 Any other definitions? Validation. We're validating it. Just going back to it's okay to feel, isn't it? An emotion is neither good nor bad. It just is. What we do with that emotion can be helpful or hurtful. So empathy is what we're looking for. What's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Sympathy is experiencing the emotion making it about you instead of yeah. being with the person and, and yeah. trying to understand their Sympathy is more about how what I'm feeling, not what we're feeling. Exactly, Paul. Sympathy reminds me of patting somebody on the head and going, oh, you poor baby. It's very clanky. We don't want to be sympathetic. We want to be empathetic. So what we're doing is talking to them in empathy, identifying the core feeling and picking it up for them. And if we do it well, we don't even have to ask any questions. We empathize with somebody, they'll tell us more of their story. It may take longer then. So what are you feeling now? It may take us longer, but they'll get there at their time and their pace, and that's more helpful. Yeah, this really is a rough time. I can't imagine waking up in the morning, kissing your child, and knowing you won't see them tonight. I can't even imagine that kind of pain. I'm so sorry is not empathetic. I'm so sorry for something can be. So instead of simply saying, as we do at funerals all the time, I'm so sorry. Sorry for your loss. Okay, whatever. I'm sorry you had to go through this. I'm sorry it hurts not to have the when you were married for 50 years, still around. Yeah, that's everything. I can't imagine how hard this could be for you. There's also a place, and I know my, my um, licensed counselors would tell us not to, but I believe there's a thing called empathic self-disclosure. If what I'm disclosing is short in order to empathize with somebody, it usually helps. For instance, uh, my husband was just diagnosed with cancer. Stage two, we're good, he's old. Okay, now it's just skipping for us. But I had cancer a long time ago. And in fact, if I'm not pulled off, I'm gonna pass out. So if I lose PowerPoints up here, somebody comes home. But I may be saying to somebody that I've just found out that has cancer. You know, we're talking about it even when we're driving in. It's still the C word. Even if it's curable, it's still the C word. And I could say, I remember what it felt like when they told me I had thyroid cancer, one of the easiest time to cure, it's still the secret. It scares the hell out of me, doesn't it? I know it scared me. That's empathic self-disclosure. Just enough to say, I get you. Okay, let me stop there. Is that one? Which is way different than, let me tell you about my cancer. Okay, then that's all about me. Sometimes a theological issue that somebody brings up with you does need to be addressed. <laughs> All right, my four students in here, do you remember this one from class? You better. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
down on your phone. <laughs> I call it my rule of three. If you miss what's important to your client, they will tell you at least three times. Sometimes they'll get louder and noisier. Look, lady, I told you I'm not an alcoholic. I just got stupid last night. Are you not understanding me? I'm not an alcoholic. Okay, what are they trying to tell us? This came from, so you know where my head goes. This came from my childhood. Um, lived with my grandma, and I'm the oldest of three kids, two younger brothers. So I've got this firstborn syndrome to start with. And every time I wanted to do something, I knew there was a chain of command in my house. So I'd ask mom, she'd say no. So I'd skip her and go to dad. Dad would say no. Well, there was only one more person in my house that could outvote everybody, and that was grandma. And my grandma, who grew up with a very practical theology, very Hebraic in images, she looked at me and said, Janie, if you've heard the same answer twice, let alone three times, it's Jesus. Are you listening or do you need to be turned into a pillar of salt? <laughs> <laughs> so my rule of three for counselors is are you listening or did you miss what's important to your client? So if they ask you the same theological issue or say a theological issue, or a minimum of three times, you missed it. Listen up. How many of you have had to write those wonderful things in CPE to call verbatims? God bless us, each and every one of us. In our verbatims, oftentimes we find out what we've missed, don't we? In the written statement, we'll look at it and go, oh my gosh, it was evident. How did I miss it? Because they'll circle back to the same thing. Meaning, you didn't hear what's important to me. If you do need to address a theological issue, keep it simple. This isn't the time to go from Genesis to Revelation and tell them the bus is awake. <laughs> I've found at least in my 40-ish plus years of ministry, a story about a character is going to be much more helpful than a text, even for a believer. I could easily say to a non-believer that comes to see counseling, you don't have to agree with me. From my perspective as a Christian, have you ever heard the story of the prodigal son? Because you're kind of reminding me of that story. Now, if they're a believer, they're going to say, well, yeah. If they aren't, they're going to say, well, no. And either way, I'm going to say, would you like to know what I'm seeing in your story? In your narrative? There were three characters in that story. Which one do you think that you as I've seen? So think about those stories. Think about what happened to. What did Joseph say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. With my background now and looking backwards, God meant it for good. A story is going to help people way more than a text will ever help. Because you're doing what? You're empathizing with their story. Using the story to see the empathy with your clients. Sometimes just that word of assurance is best. If I remind you as a client, if my client reminds you of Peter, who denied Jesus how many times? 
<laughs> and then Jesus says, on you, I will build my church. What do you think about how Jesus leaves you with the continent? have to go into the long story of as far as the east is from the west how God decided to take our place I can tell that story and the client can understand it yeah you screwed up yeah you said welcome to humanity story isn't over I read the last chapter we went people in disaster are not ready for intellectual discussions even if they too believe it to be the truth because it doesn't fit their emotional status right now yeah Brad. yeah do you think it's too much sometimes to let people self-identify <laughs> with the story well, narrative i think it's great no do you think it's too much in crisis though hmm. is that too much of a burden for them to not really it depends on how you're analyzing them to start with if you know you then have a fixed faith, yeah. and then you say, is there any character in scripture that you're feeling like right now? People like to say Job all the time. Yeah, and so why is Job good for you out of that? I just, I feel like Job. I, I have my own cloud up here. I'm a bad country and western song. There's more to Job than that, wasn't there? <coughs> what happened to the rest of the story with Job? Where do you think that's going to happen? But you don't think that taxes them too much or pulls them out of the reality of the disaster that maybe they're going through in that moment? Yeah, especially if they're asking you again. Right. Yeah. Chaplain, how come this, this makes no sense? How come it makes no sense? This isn't the time to say you're exhibiting a close faith because that's what they're doing. <laughs> it is a time to say. So who do you identify with? What do you think scripture tells you? And like you said, Jan, you know, that person might have a view of Job that might not be helpful or even like we would say theologically correct. And so like uh or like Jan did with Jesus. Well, then you know Jesus cried, Jesus wasn't this religious person that was emotional and or if somebody's like, I feel like Job and I feel like God's punishing punishing me unjustly. And if that's their entire view of Job, you can still correct but gently correct that and say, Well, the end of Job's story, God spoke to him, redeemed him, and that can be true for you too. What do you think? What do you think the end of your story might be? There's a text that I use in, in CPE by um, Wimberley, and it's called Restoring Yourself. Any of you use that in CPE? Oh, you guys did. I made you do that. <laughs> um, here's the story. Here's the myth. Here's the narrative I've been telling myself. How do I restore this? And as a believer, how do I restore this in Christ? Is that is that the truth God wants you to hear about you? Oh, I, I need to be productive. I need to produce. Um, I'm a perfectionist. Okay. What's the story God's telling you about that? I don't know. Can you tell me what happened at Jesus' baptism? Okay, pastors, what happened? What did God say to Jesus at that You are my beloved son, whom I delight in. You are my beloved son, my beloved child, in whom I'm well pleased. He hadn't even started his ministry. He hadn't done a flipping thing. So now, what's your story about how you see yourself? Jim, uh, Chapman Fields yes. on, on uh, Zoom has a, a question or a comment to make. 
Yes. Yeah. This is a perfect. Oh, we're <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? You can. You, you okay? Um, I, I'm one of those old chaplains that you talked about before. You can't hear me very well. Hello, can you hear me? This isn't working. You got me? Okay. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, now, I was just following along and listening about um, what you were talking about, about uh, with the needs you know, of the family and not lecturing. And one of the things that um, I was, I, I, have uh, done a six month deployment at the Doverport mortuary several years ago. And um, what was interesting to me is we would, I would go to the distinguished visitor lounge and pick up four star generals, uh, secretary of defense, other people. And they would ask me, I was just a major at that time, as we were driving over to the center for the families of the fallen for them to meet the families, they would ask me about what to say. They had no clue. They were battle, you know, battle ready, hardened, um, and this brought them down almost to a childlike level because they were absolutely intimidated. They, I had so many of them would go and do it and come back and say, "I'll never do this again." But one of the things they would ask me about what to say and what not to say, and one was never say they're in a better place, ever. Never say God must have wanted them. Um, or anything like that, the best thing you can do is really keep your mouth shut and just be there. It's the ministry of presence. And that's so much of what you're alluding to here. And I really appreciate it because, um, you know, one of our core competencies as military chaplains in the Air Force is advising leadership. So you get into that, you get into that groove of thinking that um, you need to fix a problem or solve it for the family. And the best thing you can do is just be there and let them talk and listen. And I'm still in touch with probably a dozen families from that time. Uh, and it's just because of that, of that care. But I can tell you, I put my foot in my mouth plenty of times over 27 years. Um, I had to learn the hard way. And uh, so I really appreciate what you're saying because it, it's so important. And some of those chaplains there might go to Dover if we spin up uh, with something with Russia or China, um, that's what all our doctrine is right now. Uh, we could be heading into to more uh, troubled waters is to uh, be prepared for that uh, as much as you can. And I encourage CPE uh, as, as something that, uh, that we do. But anyway, I'll shut up. I just wanted to make that uh, uh, encouragement. Thank you. So the other thing that I usually teach my students or clergy when I go to teach with clergy is know the difference about being a chaplain and being a theologian. There's a time to be the theologian. There's a time to be able to teach. 
is a time to be able to preach. But in the middle of a crisis, they need you to be the pastoral caregiver. They need you to walk with them, not to show them, teach them, tell them what they should be experiencing. So back, back to us talking about theological issues that do need to be addressed. It's always about the needs of our client, not the needs of us. And their readiness to hear, not when we wish them to hear. Is that making sense to you? Okay. It's almost like the whole parable of the seed on the soil. I can throw seed out there on soil that's not going to grow anything. And it's a waste of the seed, and it's a waste of my time, and it's a waste of my life. I can wait for their readiness to hear. The hardest thing that I have to work with, especially my seminarians, is for them to understand that it isn't that as a chaplain you can't evangelize. Of course you can. But we don't do it typically the way we learn to do it in the church or the way we learn to do it in our church. When the person is ready to hear, be ready to give account. It's all about them, not about us. Timing is everything when we're sharing faith with somebody. Giving them the ability to disagree with what we say is important. You have to agree with me, but as I see, it might be. Yeah, I got one in my pocket, but I got Now, how do Mark? How do I make this song? Are we? Oh. Um. Well, he's fixing that to me. This is a song that I use for students to talk about empathy. So. What I want you to do is you listen to the song. It's by Jonathan Gray, called Not Right Now. And with the fires that we've had, you may identify with it. I want you to listen to the words in the song and tell me when we're done. What do you pick up? If you were training a brand new chaplain, what would you help them hear about presence and empathy? This is what your dishwasher looks like Not after one year. Not this one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh -oh. Is that a crisis? Technology is always a crisis. You can see the smoke from a mile away. Trouble always draws a crowd. They want to tell me that it'll be okay. That's not what I need right now. Not while my house is burning down. I know someday. I know somehow I'll be okay, but not right now. All right. <laughs> Tell me though that you know it's true. It feels like a life from a friend. When the words are soft in an open 
they just can't seem to understand. But you haven't even stopped breathing. I know someday. I know someday. So, what kind of faith does the person who is in crisis remind you of? Let's go back to our first couple of slides. Open, closed, circumstantial. Open. 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 Yeah. I know someday I'll be okay, but not right now. <clears throat> okay, so that's our first assessment. Our first assessment is this is an open faith for somebody in crisis. And what is the client telling us that they need? To stay in the place where they are. The song tells us, the client tells us, just sit with me in the ashes here. Just sit with me. Don't leave me alone. Do you have enough guts to sit with me in the middle of my pain? Not everybody can do that. It takes some special people to do it and not want to fix it because it hurts us. 
what else did you pick up from the song that John talked about? What else would you tell your baby chaplains? Pictures demonstrated both kinds of disasters that were discussed. Yes, good. The human caused and so. Yes. Natural. In the exact line, but I like the line where I talk about the bleeding hasn't stopped yet. Yeah. So that gives us a visual image of, because we, we all understand bleeding and how it can be hurtful. And so right now I'm bleeding out. And you want to give me some plastic surgery? Uh -huh. I don't need plastic surgery right now. I will later. Right now, I don't need this. What else? Yes. I think if I were talking to a chaplain, I would say, um, I'll try to just this time. And don't so often go into a situation where you feel like you need to do everything at once. Just be there and just let time and God work over it. Yeah, it's kind of. you know hey there's difference between privacy and secrecy and yes. it's okay to be private with yes. things because you're going to be the one to differentiate <laughs> who's there to help with you healing and who's there because you know there's an accident you want to see the emotional carnage or death probably yeah. but almost like, like job's friends that gather around and tell them what to do when they shut up they were helpful yeah when they opened their mouths we got in trouble the other thing I think that, that I'm hearing while you're talking about that, there's a, there's a piece of this where I think one of the biggest mistakes we made, I've made as a pastor, is to decide that I need to tell somebody's story for prayer. I don't. That's how God them. It's their story to tell. It's not mine. And if I truly believe theologically that God already knows, that doesn't need me to tell me the rest of the detail. I can pray about, I've got a friend that's gone through a really rough time, Lord. That's their story, it's not our story. What else did you pick up? You are a mic now. Do I take this off? No, 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 that, that's the recording. So oh, okay. Is that going to be okay? Yeah. Thank you. All right. What else? Anything else? Noticed how the, the person at the beginning of the video was not the person at the end ah. of the video. And uh, if I was talking to younger chaplains as a younger chaplain, I would say um, it's okay to make a mistake. For someone to say, that's not what I need right now, like the lyric in there, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's bad if you don't listen to it. Yeah. And, and, and also that 
they might not even know what they need in that moment. So you're just trying to help stop the bleeding or to help usher in with that with that empathy. And it just makes me uh, it makes me so so happy that love covers a multitude of chaplain mistakes. Amen. So <laughs> I think the the older I get in ministry, the more I, I know that if my motive is right, God will clean it up. You know, I meant it for good, God. Can you fix this? I don't know how many times I promise God after a sermon. I promise I'll work on it sooner than Saturday night. And somebody will walk out and say, were you following me around? This is exactly what God wanted me to hear. Yeah. Did you hear the platitudes in there? Um. I do a lecture with students called the five pastor responses we could give. And one is a supportive response that is really platitudes. Don't worry about it. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, well, I wish he'd text it to me. <laughs> um, don't worry about it. You can always have more kids. And this is going to replace the one I have. you got to be kidding me. You know, those platitudes are not going to be helpful, even if the person believes that. Now, with their platitude, we're going to talk about how we talk about it with them. But us giving them, don't worry about it, God's still in charge. I know that. So where is he today? You know, either, either what I believed in doesn't work, or I'm not important enough. I'm the only one God forgot. So those platitudes are not helpful anytime. But especially in a crisis. Can you just sit with me in the ashes here? And one of these days, we can talk about what's going to be different. One of these days, I'll come back to what I believe. Yeah. So Jason uh, looked up what he had to say about his song while we were sitting here. And he yeah, said, I knew you'd Google it. Yeah, he said, uh, he had friend just after he poured out his heart just hug him for two minutes and how long two, uh, two minute hug was but it was what he needed what i go to with this all the time is jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. he didn't he didn't say to his disciples will you fight for me in fact he told peter not to he didn't say should i go to this cross give me your advice he didn't say would you like to take my place <laughs> He didn't say any of those things. All he asked from his friends were, can you stay awake? While my heart is breaking. While I make this choice. Can you sit with me in the ashes here? Do you love me enough not to leave me alone? And we as chaplains represent God to people. Even when we think we don't. Even in the grocery. On the plane the other day, I had two little kids sitting next to me. And we were talking about their names. And all of us had a name that was the precious gift of God, the good gift of God, whatever. And this little 15-year-old hands me a text and said, you might want to know more about God. And I said, yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a good thing. And you're sitting on a plane and all of a sudden somebody asks you about something. We will always be representing God, whether anybody knows it or not. But we do. And if we care enough not to abandon somebody, then they're going to say somewhere in their head, then God hasn't abandoned me either. That's how we become the representatives of God. Anything else from the song? 
like that it ends with the person still not okay. Yeah, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay. And grief is personal to everybody. There's a place where we can get into clinical complex grief and we need to do something about it. Father's Day just happened. My dad's been dead for 27 years. I cried all day long. I really wish that my dad would be here to see my second retirement coming up because he was so much a part of my life. The scar from the surgery is still there, but I don't have to pick at it every day. It doesn't always open up and bleed again in the same way. Okay, now this is gonna be a, a show and tell from all of us. And the, these are the important parts and then I think I'm close to done this part. Be really careful about fixing, correcting, teaching somebody that what they're giving you is bad theology. Because it may be the only thing that's holding them together right now. And it's as they're starting to make meaning. It doesn't mean that's not where they're going to end up. Their thoughts will most likely evolve or will evolve later on. But listen to what they say. Affirm what you can underneath what they say. And never be untrue to your own beliefs. Let me say that again, because I think this is important to where we're going to go in a few minutes. Listen to what's underneath their comments. For what they're feeling. What they're hoping. What they're wishing. And affirm what you can theologically without being untrue to your own belief. So here are just some things that I've picked up for years as a chaplain. So you're working with somebody and their baby has died. And they look at you and say, God must have needed my child more than I did. Okay, theologians, first of all, what's wrong with that theology? God doesn't need anything. No, exactly. <laughs> God already created us. He doesn't need us. He may want us, but he doesn't need us. But underneath that, what's this parent who's just experienced the most horrible loss a parent could ever go through saying to you? God loves my child. What else? There's a meaning for this. What else? I'll see them again. I'm not a bad parent. Okay. In this part, God needed my child says, I know that my child is safe. My child is in God's hands. Okay, now depending upon your theology, me as a Baptist, this child is with God, will be with God. I will see this child again. And I can say to that person, I know God loves children. In fact, you might remember as a Christian that Jesus said, let the little children what? And, and forbid them not because such is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, your child is safe in God's arms. Now that doesn't mean God reached down and said, whoops, I'd like to have them today. But I can affirm that the child is safe and they'll see the child again because that's what they're saying. I know my dad is now my guardian angel. What's wrong with that theology? 
People don't become angels. People don't. <laughs> Contrary to Hollywood, we do not become angels, which is a real shame because I'd like to be able to sing better. <laughs> so this is not the time to go into angels are created beings, and this is what they do, and humans will not become angels. This is not the time to correct that crappy theology. But what are they saying about their father who's now deceased? What's the cry of the heart? There's a relationship with him. There's a relationship. There's still somebody said something else. Gone to heaven. Gone to heaven. Still with me. Still with me, looking out for me. Okay. You just heard me talk about Jan's rule of three. That came from my grandma. In other times, it's like, Janny, put on your sweater. I'm cold. Okay. <laughs> Love doesn't go away, does it? Lessons are passed on. I can hear my grandma saying, do you, are you, do you need to hear me or do you need to be turned into a pillar of salt? Okay. Yeah, in that respect, yeah. The mom and dad that I grew up with are still watching out for me because they did when they were here on earth and they loved me and love doesn't die. I can affirm that. If she only had enough faith, this crisis wouldn't have happened. Okay, theologians, what's wrong with that? What kind of what kind of theology? Open or closed? Last time, last time I knew God says, you know, your mind is not my mind. Okay, if she only had enough faith, she could control God. Wrong answer. But the cry of the heart, I'm sorry, go, sir. Right. The blind man because of, yeah. Who sinned? One of us must have sinned. Not necessarily. Okay, so we don't need to teach the lesson. But what's underneath this that they're saying? Can you hear the guilt? Can you hear the if onlys? So how would you respond to this one? What could you affirm from our faith, your Christian faith? These things won't be this way. We can affirm that this is so hard and we don't understand and we can't even imagine the pain, but one day there will be no more pain. Or yeah, we, we could talk about the, the difference that it will be in heaven. There will be no weeping, wailing, or gnashing of teeth here, right? But right now, what's going to take my guilt away? If only I had shared Christ with them before they died. If only this person walked a better Christian life, this wouldn't have happened. If only my mom didn't smoke, she wouldn't have gotten cancer. If only, if only, if only. What do we do with the if onlys? So it implies an element of a certain amount of control over yes. what happens to us. Yes. We don't like to be out of control. We right. don't like things that happen to us that don't have a meaning or sense or yeah. are outside of our control. Yeah, so there's control and guilt issues that we need to talk to. <laughs> and first of all, I, I could say to somebody, I wish I had a magic wand because I'd wave it over your head. But actually, if I had one, it would be all used up. I would have put it over mine. <laughs> but we don't know these pieces. We can't go back. We can go forward. 
we can say, how are you now going to live? Now that this has happened to you, what now? This is when you get into some survivor guilt. This is when, when we get into things like, God spared me for a reason. In fact, that, that's coming up now. We got it, we prayed and God spared me for a reason. I don't know if that's true or not. That's a real possibility. Sometimes tongue in cheek, I say to myself, God must have spared you because you didn't have your act together yet. But inside, God spared you? I don't know. But I can say, if God spared you, what now? What's going to be different? Those of us that have had near-death experiences that have had the cancers, your life changes. Every moment is different. What's different for me is I don't, I don't waste a moment telling people what, how important they are to me. Because I don't know when it happens next. God's going to return for us corporately, but I think he returns for us individually until he returns corporately. So how will you now live? What's also wrong with God prayed and spared us? Yeah, I prayed and it didn't happen. Isn't there a bit of narcissism in this too? I told God what to do and God agreed with me. Right. Or a lifeguard. Yep. Okay. God took this person to spare him from this in the future. Is that possible? Sure it is. Do we know whether that's true or not? No. But what's the cry of the person's heart we're ministering to? I love the person. Their pain is over. That's something we can tell to us gray-haired people. You know? Yeah. Okay. I think one Someone loses a child, even an adult child, and and if the person died, and then the, then shortly thereafter the child died. Well, that's when, when you when I hear this. So what I want you to look at with some of these examples is, don't go to preaching and teaching, but listen for what's underneath that, the emotion, and speak to the emotion in a short biblical way that matches you. We don't want to correct their theology. We want to help them move through their theology. Not right now. Yes, makes sense? Okay. I like previously you shared the analogy of like it may be like the crutch, like the only thing that's actually supporting them. And if we kick that out, but everything can yeah. tumble. And that yeah. reminder, because really they're just trying to find purpose in the midst of their pain. Yeah. So as we can walk alongside in that. And especially if you go back to, they had, a, they had a closed theology to start with. What they believed all their life in Morgan. So if we walk with them in it, they may have a chance to develop an open face now. To know that crappy stuff happens to people. That doesn't mean God's abandoned you and neither will I. Um, any of you science fiction freaks? Oh, good. Any of you see signs? Oh, Yay. I wish I could show you some clips for this, but everything is kind of flashback and dark. So I'll give you just a little bit of the synopsis. These two films on here, I think you can use for yourselves or anybody else.
to look at the different types of faith, open, closed, circumstantial. <clears throat> Inside, Mel Gibson starts out with a clerical collar on. He gets called as a police chaplain, apparently, or at least as a pastor, to an accident, and the accident is his wife. And she's dying, and she says these really weird things to him, like, tell your brother, Joaquin Phoenix, not to forget to swing away. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry about our daughter who, my words, is obsessive, compulsive and has bottles of water all over the place. Don't worry about it. Okay, fine. You know our kid with asthma? Don't worry about that one either. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's hearing this from his soon to be dying wife. Now we flash into Hollywood and the bad guys come and the only bad guys we're allowed to have right now are aliens. So the aliens show up and you see Mel Gibson is going to try to save the world and save his family, okay? There's a scene in the middle of this where they're having dinner and his brother says to him, well, aren't you gonna pray? And he said, there's nobody here to pray to anymore. My wife died like this, the aliens came. There's nobody to pray to. Okay, so now the aliens show up at his house and they're coming through the windows. And somehow he remembers what his wife said to him. And he looks at his brother who's a baseball player and says, swing away. And the brother thinks, you know, beat the aliens, right? Instead, what he does is he knocks over a glass of water. Now we're in the Wizard of Oz. Welcome to Hollywood. And the aliens start to melt. <laughs> ah, I know how to take care of this now. Now I know how to save my family in the world. But another alien comes through the window and grabs his son, carries him off to the field. And he runs out there to check on his son to try to get this alien away. And the aliens apparently go through our nostrils and down into us. Well, guess what? Asthma won't let that happen. So now you don't see it in the movie, but you kind of hear in the background of this whole story, I'm reading the signs and making meaning. When my wife was dying, God was telling me how to care for our family in the world. The very last scene in the movie, he's got his clerical collar on and he's gone back to work. Open faith, closed faith, circumstantial faith, back to open faith. The other thing that I use in teaching sometimes is this um, PBS documentary right after 9-11 called Faith and Doubt at 9-11. And they interviewed so many people about now that this happened, how do you believe? And you'll see people that were clergy and said, ain't no God that I ever believed in. You'll see other people that had no faith going, I was spared for a reason. Remember the iconic picture of the two people holding hands that jumped out of the tower? You'll see people saying, what an image of hope. And other people saying, what an image of despair. People will be making meaning. It's our responsibility as chaplains to walk with them as they make meaning. Making sense to you? Okay, um, since I lost nine minutes at the beginning, <clears throat> Any questions about this before I put you on break and then we'll go on a break?
Anything about this morning's piece that was extra helpful to you? I know for several of you live in the same places. Take advantage of this, so we still got time. No, nothing worked. <laughs> I'm gonna take that offering. <laughs> just, just the, the paradigm of identifying the open, closed space, um, as well as the the not fixing theology. It's something where it's like, okay, I know I'm not supposed to be teaching, but I struggle with that, especially if it's the, sure. the sin-based theology where sure. I caused this to happen myself. It's like, you're the, you were a victim of something. But, <laughs> or you caused it. Yeah, and it's, it's like- You know, God gave you a choice. It's called free will. I want to fix. It's like, no, I can't fix. So just hearing the different ways to affirm, I think is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, affirm what's true and avoid the rest. What you just said also remind me of another movie that I absolutely love. I teach a, a lecture on cinema therapy, um, and that's the Adjustment Bureau. Any of you see that one? I love the line in there <laughs> when our protagonist says to the angel, whatever happened to free will? And the angel said, we keep giving you it, you screw it up, we take it back. <laughs> There's a lot of really cool theology in that movie including how the chairman, God changes the path of these two people because they were willing to sacrifice for each other. Brad, you had a point? Yeah, I was just gonna ask, um, my experience, I, I don't know everyone else, but the demographic seems to be more and more biblically illiterate. Oh, so for sure. Often have to retell the story because they don't know the story, yeah. even the simple story, like what I would call the simple story. Yeah. I, I wonder if that's, that, that's, that's what I'm seeing at the seminary. People are coming in without, some of us are cradle Christians, you know, from, from birth on, that's what I knew. Some of them are coming in with such a non-denominational, almost, almost buffet kind of approach. Oh, I kind of like this. I don't like that. I kind of like this. I heard about that. It's very synchronistic. And so, yeah, what, what I love about that, there's no bad habits to break. I need to remember that part. There's no bad habits to break. This isn't an embedded theology we've got to fix. This is a blank slate to write on. But talking about what we were talking about in here, have you ever heard that story about the... Maybe, maybe you might want me to share that with you. Because you remind me of... And people are going to want to know what you remind them of, what they remind you of. You know, you're, you're kind of at the place where I imagine Mary Magdalene to be. Shunned by everybody. The possibility of being stoned for something she's not responsible for. A little 15-year-old, give or take, who finds out she's pregnant and had an angel visitor. My God, we'd put her in the loony bin right now. And instead of judging her, God was born through her. Huh. I wonder how that reminds me of you. Yeah, that's a, that's a place to go. And people are going to be curious. They're going to be darn curious about it. One of the assignments I give my CPE students um, is to write a biblical character paper. Who do you see yourself as? 
And what does that mean to us about who you see yourself? I've always identified with Moses. You know, <laughs> I'm a woman in ministry in a double metal world of the military and religion. Yeah, right. That's going to work really well. You know, can't you send Aaron? <laughs> but as I kept going, there's other parts of Moses' story that now fits for me. When I went into CPE education as a 67-year-old when I got certified, good Lord have mercy, it was like, well, who better to do this than you? You've been a part of CPE since 1978. This is the way you teach. This is the praxis to the theology. Who better to be a part of this than you? Yeah, Moses, go to Egypt. Who better to send? Who better to go to Egypt? Is it going to be risky? Yeah. You could be killed for that death that you caused. Uh-huh. You could have the jealousy between you and the current pharaoh that was your brother. Uh-huh. Do you trust me enough to go to Egypt? There's always a piece of the story where my story will interact. That's for my sake as well as for my client's sake to hear that part of the story. When I was in seminary, I used the 23rd Psalm as my, my preaching. And by the way, when I went to seminary, to Southern Baptist Seminary, there were only four women in the MDiv program, three Methodists and me, and the three Methodists quit. I thought I was going to be stoned in front of the chapel most days. Um, but I looked at that Psalm and I thought, this is David talking through his developmental lifestyle. This is David, the young shepherd. This is David, the warrior. This is David at old age. This story is going to relate to anybody. Just that part. And most people, even non-believers, will know the 23rd Psalm. Thanks for bringing that up. Anything else? We have a question. Oh, good. Go ahead. Chaplain Fields, are you there? Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead and talk. Okay. I was just going back again to uh, make uh, uh, reference to CPE. Um, I really feel very strongly about this. In fact, that's one of my jobs as the division chief here at the Readiness Center is to provide CPE for our National Guard chaplains. And um, uh, I, I came away from Dover, just to be perfectly honest. I've had um, a lot of problems. Uh, so that time I've, I've been in counseling uh, about a lot of those things. And I always said I did CPE in reverse. I really should have done it before I went. Um, I should have at least had one unit uh, to be more aware and self-aware of how I deal with traumas, how I deal with exposure, um, things like that. And so I strongly encourage CPE as a great program. And I grant that theologically you may get in there and have a supervisor that is totally different from you and many others, but that group will help to bring out in you things you are unaware of. And um, I wish I had had a unit before I went to Dover, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I think I would have had less problems coming after that, coming away from that. That's 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 all. Thank you so much. And I can finish with a commercial. Are any of you in here CP educators? Darn, I'm looking for a new position at my seminary to take over so I can retire. I need an educator. 
Um, a couple things about that. One is CPE grew up to train clergy in crisis. It didn't grow up to make hospital chaplains. It now makes hospital chaplains because that's where we put people. Okay, making sense? So all of the techniques, all of the skills, mostly the stuff you learn about yourself is transferable any place, any place. I'm gonna have me with me for the rest of my life. I am still gonna be the one who, if there's a power vacuum, I'm gonna fill it and be obnoxious. Yep. How does that get in the way of helping people or, hurt, or not helping people? Man, I'm a mama tiger if you're gonna hurt my kids. Yeah? <laughs> I can get on their case. I remember PJ saying, thanks for being so patient with me. <laughs> um, but don't you let you hurt them. Mm -mm. I'm gonna be an advocate for somebody who can't speak for themselves. That'll be with me for the rest of my life. That's some of the stuff CPU will tell us. It won't teach us techniques as much as it will teach us about us. And that's the more important part because we may be the only person God puts in somebody's life sometimes. Now, the other commercial I have for you is because of COVID in particular, ACPE, CPE, now does a lot of CPE online. And you all don't have to leave your ministries to do CPE. That can be your clinical site. My third unit, my fourth, my fourth unit of CPE, even back in 1980 when I came on active duty, they let me use the ministry that I had with basic trainees as my clinical site. Because you're working with people, it doesn't matter where. So if you're still interested in some units of CPE, go to acpe.edu, look up centers, and look for online. One of the things I want to do when I retire from two years from active teaching at the seminary is just do CPE units. And I want to do cohorts of people. I want to do a cohort <coughs> of chaplains. I want to do a cohort of military chaplains. I want to do a co cohort of, in fact, in, in uh, Denver, Colorado, um, the Supermax chaplains down in Pueblo want me to work with them. How cool is that? One of my students is a, is a former um, academy grad from the Air Force as a doc. He said, can you help me train my new docs? Oh, let me think about this for a long time. Yeah, I could do that. Okay, we can make that happen. There's a tremendous ability to be much more creative than we've ever been before, thanks to COVID. <coughs> so if you want it, or you want your young kids to be trained in it, go for it. The other part of my commercial I need your help with, if you know somebody, especially in the military, especially in the Army, because the Army is still the only one that certifies educators, the rest of us contract it. If you know somebody that's ready to retire and is looking for a job in academia, um, probably that position is going to be open within the next three months. And it will be a administrative faculty position. Meaning you don't have to do all the nonsense that I keep having to do. Stop this thing. <laughs> you don't have to do all the other, the, the other stuff that I have to do as a faculty person. It's only being contracted to teach CPE units and run the center and train other CPE educators. Kind of cool. And they finally figured out they need to pay them well. What a surprise. But if you know somebody, um, 
think my emails are all on the PowerPoints. Just just send me a thing or send it to Mark and I can get a hold of somebody. Okay, anything else to debrief this piece before we take our break? Okay, I'm giving you 10 minutes, not 11, not 15. Ready? Go. Don't leave yet. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Wait, 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 wait. So uh, just uh, as a reminder of something that, that Jan was saying, every one of you who is serving as chaplains have an impact in a very special way that nobody else does. I mean, I think about Brad with Soccer Chaplains United and the work he's doing with these these guys and gals that are, are you know, from international countries, for one, and just he may be the only person that they've ever had anybody talk to them about God, you know, what is this? And, you know, I think about uh, Jennifer and her work with, with families and with children who are looking at end of life situations. And, and I think, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Remember, you are in a special place that God has put you and what you can do is absolutely amazing because he's doing it with you and through you. 